Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. What's different about Donald Trump, though, is that he is not trying to be the leader of the Republican Party. He's trying to be leader of the Trump Party, which is to say he's not particularly interested in building the Republican Party, in ensuring that the party itself succeeds. In fact, he's spent as much time going after Republicans who he sees as disloyal to him than he has in trying to build a case to go and win seats in the midterm elections in 2022 or come back in 24. Here with Amy Walter, national editor of the Cook Political Report and host of Public Radio's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Solomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. Learn more at SolomonLudwin.com. Catch our recent live show with the University of Richmond's Robin School of Business and all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com on Spotify, and on NPR One. And a shout out to our radio listeners in Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C., in Asheville, North Carolina, and out west in Southern California. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me is Amy Walter, national editor of the Cook Political Report and host of WNYC's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. You also see Amy lots on the PBS NewsHour and NBC's Meet the Press. I believe I've seen you on Face the Nation. How are you? I'm doing all right. Pandemic fine, I guess, here on another gray February day. May I ask you off the bat, where were you on January 6th? Or what did you anticipate that day versus kind of expectations and reality? You know, it's interesting for me, January 6th was actually supposed to be the day where I was going to get to dig into all of the data that came out of Georgia on the 5th. That's right. And, you know, the Cook Report team was going to spend the day sort of updating that race and all that we were learning about the outcome. Sure. You know, I was expecting to watch the process. In fact, what I was the most interested in was to see how specific members of Congress were going to vote and what they were going to say when they got to the House floor. So I had that on in the background. And again, the expectation was, this is going to be an opportunity to hear from individual members of Congress. I wasn't paying any attention at all to what was going down on the Mall. And with the the rally and Trump speaking and all of that. And I can't remember when this happened, but suddenly the screen, the TV screen was filled with these images of people in front of the Capitol outside. And then when I looked down on Twitter, what I noticed was the Capitol Hill reporters that I follow started saying things like they're banging on doors, they're breaking windows, this is getting out of hand. We knew that they were moving members off the floor. And so it was one of these 
okay, maybe this is just going to be a quick thing where the Capitol Police and others sort of shut it down. Obviously, that didn't happen. So as the day moved on, it just got progressively worse, obviously, and it got harder and harder to ignore what was happening there. For me, you know, what happened on January 6th still was difficult to process in that moment in part because we didn't really have good information, in part because all of the TV coverage, you know, the cameras that were there were mostly capturing what was happening outside. And then there were a couple of scenes from inside the rotunda, but that didn't capture the real violence and panic that was going on inside that building. And it's only been in the last few weeks as we've gotten individual videos, phone, handheld devices that were recording this, that we got to see the full scope of it. The other reality in our pandemic time is that all of this is happening while our son, who is in eighth grade, is also doing his school from home. And so I actually rarely have the TV on in part because it's just there's too much else happening in our household and you know we don't want one more thing running but it was clear that this event was worthy of turning the TV on and keeping it on all afternoon and our son was up in his room doing school and came down and was asking what was going on right he saw all of these pictures of people outside and the screaming and the police and the pictures were starting to come out now of the scuffles between the police and the protesters. And he said, what's going on here? This doesn't look like a protest. It's an attack. And wow, that really did just hit me, right? I mean, this is our kid who he's grown up in Washington, D.C. He's used to seeing protests and marches. That's a pretty common experience for him. But even he very quickly realized this is not normal. There's something wrong here. What do you think the objective was nominally when Donald Trump kind of addressed them outside the White House before they marched down Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol? Did he kind of privately internalize that he had lost the election and he just wanted kind of revenge? He wanted to wreck the hotel room on the way out. What do you think the thinking was? Because could you really go in there and force Mike Pence at gunpoint or or force the Speaker of the House to overturn, to not accept the electors of the states? Like, you know, outside of screenplay fantasy, what was he romancing? It's a really hard question to answer in large part because you have to get inside Donald Trump's brain. But the one thing we do know about Donald Trump is that he likes to have a narrative and he needed to have a narrative about why this election didn't go the way that it was supposed to for him. Sure. And, you know, he'd obviously been telling everyone through his Twitter stream, through very aggressive conversations he was having with Republican elected officials, that the election was stolen, it was rigged, it wasn't fair, and that ultimately he would be vindicated. But mostly what he was trying to do is is set up, I think, the story, Mm -hmm. the story of why he didn't win so that it was always going to be cemented for his supporters and for himself as this election that was not valid. And I think as the protests started to build. They're standing in front of the Capitol. Boy, this certainly makes his case pretty strongly. Mm. I think in some ways, though, has been able to keep that myth alive, despite 
the tragedy at the Capitol. And that's probably the more dispiriting piece of all of this, because there was a moment in which, as the protests were happening on the Mall before they got to the Capitol, again, you could see then President Trump sort of setting up the story and that he was going to be able to leave office on January 20th with a significant chunk of the American population believing that he was wronged Mm. and that he could spend the rest of his life telling the story and living in this alternative reality. And the violence at the Capitol, though, was supposed to shatter that. It was going to bring into real life the danger of making up these stories and of telling these lies over and over again. And yet here we are, all these weeks later, Mm. the president obviously was not convicted. You only had a handful of Republicans come out in the House for impeachment or to convict him in the Senate. And so we aren't in any that much of a different place today than we were back on January 5th, when you had a majority of Republicans believing that the election was stolen and it was an election that was not held fairly. So, of course, he was uh, Donald Trump was impeached. I mean, kind of fait accompli, reluctantly conceded that even though he disagreed with the results of the election after that riot, at the end of that day, he said that there will be an orderly transfer of power. He was impeached by the House. uh, And even though he was acquitted by the Senate, there wasn't the, you know, the required two thirds of the Senate vote to convict him. There were, was it seven Republicans who kind of switched over on the side of the ledger? Having said all of that, uh, within 24 hours of that, they're putting out trial balloons for Lara Trump or maybe Ivanka Trump running for Senate in Florida. The, the, the question for you is, is Donald Trump still the leader, the torchbearer for the Republican Party? There's no doubt that he is. And here's the difference if Donald Trump versus other Republicans or, quite frankly, any other president before him, which is when a party loses the White House. There's that awkward period, those four years, where there's not really a leader of the opposition party. You know, we're not like other countries, especially countries with uh, parliamentary systems where you have the party in power and that leader, you know, the prime minister, something, and then you have the opposition party leader and everybody knows who that is. That doesn't happen in our system. So the person who was last president is still nominally the leader of the party. What's different about Donald Trump, though, is that he is not trying to be the leader of the Republican Party. He's trying to be leader of the Trump Party, which is to say he's not particularly interested in building the Republican Party, in ensuring that the party itself succeeds. In fact, he's spent as much time going after Republicans who he sees as disloyal to him than he has in trying to build a case to go and win seats in the midterm elections in 2022 or come back in 24. And, you know, a person who wants to build a party is someone who also is willing to say, we have a, you know, a big and diverse group of voters in this party and their opinions all matter. And, you know, we we find a way to unify around the following policies or the following issues. Mm. In this case, there is no policy prescriptions that are keeping the party together. It is purely around loyalty. And the fact that you had so many of these Republicans who voted to either impeach or convict Donald Trump being censured by their own party (laughs) suggests 
that this is really all about one thing, and that's a personality. Hmm. And that is a very challenging thing to do, right? To, to build a party around a personality, because there's only one Donald Trump. And yes, you may see members of his family run, and maybe they will succeed. But in order to really, for the Republican Party to move it forward, to bring more people into the party, it needs to be something other than it needs to stand for something other than Donald Trump. And that's the thing that I don't understand either when Republicans willingly holding on to Trumpism because they see it as successful when Donald Trump lost the election, Republicans don't have control of the Senate or the House. You know, just from a an electoral perspective, this was not a successful four years. And so you know, to, to look back at the last four years and say, you know what, this was really good. I'm, we, we really need to do more Trump. We need to have more cowbell, right? More Trump cowbell. That's the way we're going to get back into power. Strikes me as odd. And so look, 2022, it's a midterm election. So put all the caveats there. It's, it's not going to tell us what the next presidential election will look like. But we have been, you know, looking at a candidate in Trump for president who in running the last two times failed to get 50% of the vote, not just the popular vote, but failed to hit 50% of the vote in key states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, in two elections in a row. That, to me, is a pretty, you're putting yourself in a politically precarious position. Well, yeah, Amy, I'm I'm reminded, I'm reminded, you know, talk about the through line going back to the 1950s is Senator Joseph McCarthy mentored Roy Cohn. I'm sure you've read about this. And Roy Cohn going into the 70s and 80s mentored Donald Trump. In fact, Donald Trump has been rumored to say many times, where's my Roy Cohn, right? He was the Machiavellian mob attorney and fixer in New York who really ruled by fear. And if you saw Angels in America, that was, you know, Tony Kushner's version of Roy Cohn. It's amazing to me that that strain of McCarthyism, where kind of ruling by fear in the Senate, and either you're with me or you're not with me, you kiss my ring or you're, you're outcast, that's really been pungent. I mean, I was struck in that Liz Cheney, the number three ranking uh, Republican in the House, dared to vote to impeach him. And they already have a, what is it, a Freedom Party person in Florida out there. It's pretty unprecedented, like a Florida congressman flying out to the country to campaign against her. I mean, you would think that it's it's the party eating itself, but it's very much what Donald Trump has kind of suborned across the board is, if you're not with me, I will primary you. And that's the thing. It's, it is a, all about a, a personality. I mean, in some ways, if you said, well, what is Trumpism? You could come up with some policy that would define Trumpism. Certainly, you know, the America first and a much more aggressive stance on things like China and a more populist approach to trade. But at the end of the day, it really is the style of politics that Donald Trump promoted that mm. is the most salient feature of Trumpism and is what is the through line really through our politics going forward. And so what I think Republicans are hoping is that they will succeed in the next couple of elections because Democrats will overreach, they will go too far to the left, and Republicans will be able to say, look, Democrats did what they always do, which is they spend too much and they're going overboard on some of these cultural issues and we have to rein them back in. 
The danger, though, for Republicans is that being so closely identified with Donald Trump still makes them unappealing to big swaths of the population that used to be Republican, specifically you know, these suburban white voters. And the more Trumpian the party gets, the harder it's going to be to get those voters back. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're joined by Amy Walter, national editor of The Cook Political Report and host of WNYC's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. You also see her lots on the PBS NewsHour and NBC's Meet the Press. Uh, you mentioned uh, Romney and 2012, Amy, and the existential element of it. I'm old enough to remember that there was a postmortem report that a handful of even-keeled uh, elder statesmen of the GOP commission to say, why did we lose in 2012? Why wasn't it all that close against Obama? Why can't we get our act together? And I thought it suggested a widening of the tent. We have to appeal to Latino voters, to immigrants, to suburban mothers more. And yet the read that I have going into 2016 is that they really dispensed with all of that. Like, no, you can really embrace the base and make a bet that you can get a lot of other people who may not, may not have felt enfranchised before, a lot of aggrieved uh, working class whites, maybe without a college education. And it worked. It worked in 2016 for whatever it's worth, even though it didn't win the popular vote. Does anybody ever pick up that dusty, musty tome and say, maybe we need to reconsider it again? Right. Well, I think a lot of folks looked at the 2020 election and they said, well, you know, Donald Trump brought a lot of new voters into the party and they weren't just white voters. He did really well with Latino voters in all states, but specifically where it mattered the most in South Texas and in South Florida. And so he expanded the tent in a way that those traditionally establishment Republicans like John McCain and Mitt Romney did not. But what Trump has also done is, is he has set politics now as an existential fight for who and what America really is. You know, you think about the Mitt Romney campaign, which was essentially, elect me, I'm a really competent businessman, and Republicans, you know the Republican Party, we are for fiscal discipline, we're going to make sure to rein in this crazy debt and deficit, and we embrace entrepreneurship, right? We are the business party. We're the party, not of the working class party, but we are the party of success. But that is not as compelling a message as what Donald Trump is offering, which is, I am the only thing standing in the breach right now. If you vote for the other party, if you vote for this Democratic candidate, the America that you know and love is going to go away. And that is something that has proven to be successful in some ways for Donald Trump. But again, in other ways, this making America choose between which direction it wants to go was not particularly successful in 2020 for Republicans, right? And even in 2016, and certainly in 2018, voters weren't overwhelmingly supportive of Republicans. So the let's make America choose about what we are and who we are. It has not worked out thus far, you know, by embracing essentially we are the party of a white America that is being threatened, a white Christian America that is being threatened, that is being threatened by demographics that's being impacted and threatened by social and cultural change. And it's going to be gone 
all of this, everything you thought America stood for is going away if you don't come out and vote and vote for me. Now, can somebody else pick up that mantle successfully, be as effective, do it as authentically, do it as unabashedly? And of course, Trump had no shame either in the way he wielded race and of course wielded untruths. (laughs) That is something that very few traditional politicians have been willing to do or have done successfully. I have to I have to understand if that's even compatible. Like somebody like a Ted Cruz, who really openly sparred with Donald Trump in the 2016 primary. I remember the phrase, what you sniveling weasel and, and the back and forth and bringing his wife into it and his father and all of this stuff. Or Lindsey Graham, who that infamous tweet that if we if we bet the ranch effectively on Donald Trump, we're going to get destroyed as a party and we deserve it. Or someone like Governor Nikki Haley of, of uh, South Carolina, who kind of had to hold her nose and belatedly back Trump. I mean, do these people actually think that that by nominally supporting him right now, inter- intervening period, that they're going to get his blessing for a 2024 run? I don't think that he's going to bless anybody. Exactly. Um, because he loves watching people fight for his attention, only for him to then completely disregard them in the end. You will never be able to win him over. So that is, to me, a fool's errand. I think the question for those candidates, as I said, is, do they look authentic in presenting themselves as a Trumpian candidate? Or do they look like a politician who is in an ill-fitting suit? right you know they're trying they're trying on this suit called trump and everybody can see that it doesn't fit them particularly well which is why i think that you know the the kinds of candidates that will succeed in the post trump era are ones who fit in that same sort of or cut from that same sort of cloth as trump which is they really are something of an outsider right they don't come from within politics they are shameless in the way in which they talk about the cultural and demographic issues in front of us, and sort of willing to say or do anything to stay in the good graces of the voters of the Republican Party. So, you know, to me, the kind of person that fits the Trumpian mold is somebody we haven't seen yet. It's not going to come from the people who are sitting around in Congress right now trying to morph into just a different looking version, like a physically different looking version than Donald Trump. So is it just an academic footnote for kind of politics and history class that the GOP now, if you go back three decades, has won the popular vote in a presidential election exactly once in 2004 when W beat John Kerry? That that just doesn't matter. I mean, I guess you can run the tables in a certain way. And uh, 2016 being the biggest political upset in, in the history of the union. But what are the chances that that happens again? I mean, this time it was Biden getting more than 81 million votes. It was Trump getting a still substantial 74, 75 million votes. But it seems to be at some point the incremental, the marginal base voter that you get is going to turn off the swing voter that you need. Am I reading that incorrectly? No, I think you're very correct about that. And I think, honestly, in 2020, the Donald Trump campaign made no effort at all to try to win the popular vote. I mean, that's stunning. Most people who run for president would like to get a majority support of the country in which they are leading. You know, after George W. Bush won in 2000, he spent 
a good chunk of his time reaching out to Democrats, trying to do bipartisan legislation, understanding that to run for re-election in 2004, he was going to need to have a broader coalition. And (laughs) theoretically, to try to hit a 50% popular vote to give him legitimacy for his second term. Donald Trump does not care about that because he is not the president of the entire country. He's the president of the states that will give him their votes. Look, it, it wasn't just that he didn't win the popular vote. I do think it's important to recognize that he fell under 50% in the states needed to win the Electoral College and didn't improve that much from his 2016 showing. So if you look at those numbers, you say, okay, so more people turned out in 2020 than turned out in 2016. And even then, Trump's overall popular vote margin moved a point. And in the Electoral College, his numbers moved in the individual states moved half a point or a little bit less than a point. Or in a place like Arizona, it moved one point. All right. So all those new voters who came out, many of them, yeah, they turned out and they voted for Donald Trump, but a lot of them turned out to vote against Donald Trump. So, you know, if you if you're going to play that strategy, there are more of the non-Trump voters. Now, the one thing I will say though to sort of contradict myself a little bit is even with all of that that I just pointed out, if you had 44,000 votes go the other way in Arizona, Wisconsin, Georgia, go from Biden to Trump, there would be a 269 to 269 tie in the Electoral College. And Donald Trump would be president right now because the election would have gone to the House and there are more Republican delegations in the House and it would have been over. Or say, move 90,000 votes. So Trump wins Nebraska too and those three states and he gets just over 270 electoral votes. He wins the Electoral College barely, and of course, loses the popular vote again. Thinking about this, and and this is not just about a political strategy, but think about what it means for our country and a country that is already deeply polarized, the idea that we could have, once again, a Republican candidate run for president, lose the popular vote, and win. And what does it say about a country, you know, where this can happen over and over again, you know, about our political system? And what about the people who are in the majority, the 51 or 52% who vote for the Democratic candidate who find themselves, or even the 50.8% or whatever it is, vote for the Democratic candidate only to find that their candidate has lost again, Mm -hmm. and that a Republican, simply because they were able to get the right numbers and the right numbers of states is able to serve as president. And I think that just divides the country even more and probably divides it in in a more dangerous way. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. My guest is Amy Walter, national editor of The Cook Political Report and host of WNYC's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Uh, Amy, I have to ask you, uh, Georgia, you mentioned that Georgia was on your mind on the morning of, of June 6th, and you thought it would be all about crunching precincts and hundreds and thousands of votes here and doing the Kornacki dance, if you will, kind of an inside baseball reference. But what is Georgia telling us to the extent that this went for a Democrat, however marginally, for the first time since 92, when you had, you know, Ross Perot split the ticket, if you will, but the two Democrats won this time around. And I didn't expect it to happen in Georgia. If anything, I thought that North Carolina might go blue first. And yet, did, did Georgia blindside you? No, Georgia was looking competitive for quite some time. And I think what Georgia has taught us is 
and, and quite frankly, Arizona too, is the importance of density in this conversation. So North Carolina is a state that, yes, has been very close, really you go back to the 2008 election, but Republicans almost always come up on the winning side. But it's also a state that does not have a major metro area. It has Charlotte and has a research triangle, Asheville, some of these fast growing areas, but there's not one core metro like Atlanta is in Georgia and Phoenix is in Arizona. And so what we're seeing in a place like Georgia is you you combine an African-American population that's also bigger than the African-American population in North Carolina and a suburban vote that is moving very much Democratic, much quicker than it is in North Carolina. And now you have a true purple state. So Charlotte isn't doing that for North Carolina in the same way. That's what we thought would happen. Charlotte, Mecklenburg, and Harvey Gantt, and the activism there, and what happened with the bathroom bill in 2016. You thought that, if anything, this would be a hub, a locus of of blue control. But it it turned out to be Atlanta and the suburbs more than that. Yeah, Charlotte is... You know, it's a fast-growing city, and the and again, the research triangle, pretty fast-growing. A lot of people coming from outside of North Carolina. But if you look at Charlotte, for example, you know, Mecklenburg County, which is Charlotte, continues to move to the blue, darker and darker blue. But you go right outside of Mecklenburg County to where the exurbs are, and it's really deep red. And so if you look at Atlanta, what you see is the sort of co-centric circles around Georgia where... You know, you get it's dark blue, medium blue, lighter blue, purpley blue, purple, red, dark red, right? In Charlotte, it really is basically, it's like blue, and then it goes directly to red. And so it's not to say that North Carolina isn't competitive or that a Democrat can't get elected there. It's just to say that the dynamic is different than in a state like Georgia. But even then, remember, Democrats still only, this was a very narrow win at the presidential level, and the race for the Senate was very close, and the governor's race in 2018 was very, very close. But certainly, I think you have the makings in Georgia between the suburbs and significant African-American population of a more robust opportunity than North Carolina. But is it a leader? Is it a leadership bottleneck in that a Stacey Abrams really figured it out? I mean, came within an inch of winning herself in the governor's race and then and then figured out how to activate. And on top of that, that you had pretty unpopular incumbents running, you know, and Kelly Loeffler, her own WNBA team <laughs> abandoned her. Right. I mean, and then you had this disconnect with Donald Trump and Donald Trump wasn't as wholehearted after he lost his election. So are those are those reflective of a maybe a perfect storm happening or do you potentially see Georgia swinging blue much the same way Virginia? People didn't talk about Virginia was a red, a ruby red state well into the aughts and nobody really talks about it as a red state anymore. Um, I think that, yes, we have to remember that success is never done overnight. It looked like this happened very quickly, but you had on the ground organizing by Abrams and others, especially in the African-American community and among young people that made this possible. And remember the other big challenge, especially in the South, um, that you don't have in, say, Northern Virginia, uh, which has become incredibly blue, is an evangelical white population. So the white population in and around the Atlanta suburbs or Georgia writ large, 
I would argue is probably more conservative than that of uh, Northern Virginia. Yeah. And you think about the pandemic moves. I mean, Miami and Austin are so much in the news right now for people who want, you know, tax and tech refugees from California. I mean, Austin's only getting more popular. And at that point, like Austin is Austin is a blue region. I mean, if Bay Area people bring their skills and money to South Florida, even though the state turned more red last time. Uh, you could see a demographic shift if things are up for grabs and people can actually move and work remotely right now. Do you guys at the Cook Political Report kind of sit back and say, wow, uh, this country actually demographically could be seeing one of these big resets into the next two, three, four years? If you're allowed to work remotely, if you're allowed to make a great migration from California and take some of your blue talents to Texas or Georgia or Virginia, I'm in Richmond, Virginia, and a lot of people have moved here uh, from New York and from D.C. during the quarantine. And, and the longer that they're OK with this work from home experiment, oh, maybe they set up residence. Maybe they buy uh, a house here. Maybe they register to vote here. So, look, I think the challenge for this country is our post-pandemic and we'll see what happens. Yes, migration patterns are certainly being impacted. But we also know it's certain kinds of people that are able to move who have certain kinds of jobs. And so what I fear could happen is again that the, this pandemic only serves to divide us even further, which is, you know, in and around these quote unquote knowledge centers, Richmond, Nashville, Atlanta, Charlotte, you're going to see this in migration from other bluer areas like California and New York. But ultimately, the people that get left behind in those states are also going to have an equally important impact, right? Where do, where do their politics go as they see, and again, it doesn't just have to be DC or New York, but think about, you know, if, if you no longer have to be tied to place, what happens to a lot of these places and the people who are not as malleable, who can't just pick up and move. And, you know, what we're seeing in our country right now is we have this density divide, right? The, the, the denser an area, whether it's considered a suburb or an urban area, uh, the denser the area, the more likely it is to be Democratic. The less dense, the more likely it is to be Republican. We take that as a matter of course right now, that like rural areas are red and urban areas are blue, but it wasn't always this way. And, and it wasn't that long ago that you had Democrats in states like North Dakota and South Dakota and Louisiana and Arkansas. And I think this is part of the challenge right now. This density divide, this, this geographic divide is a problem in trying to solve some of our big problems like climate change, for example. When you have Democrats from energy producing states and you have Republicans who live in knowledge centers that don't you know, their livelihood doesn't come from energy extraction. Those voices within the party become really important, sort of moderating influences, right? But now what you have is a Republican party that represents almost all of the energy extraction states and a Democratic party that represents almost all of the sort of economic hubs, sort of the GDP hubs of, you know, these cities and their environs. And so having a conversation on climate becomes really difficult if the only people in your delegation come from places where their livelihoods don't come from getting coal or gas or anything like that. 
or when we have a conversation about immigration. It looks really different if you live in a place where you're not interacting with people from different walks of life in a, in a rural area, a small town that's overwhelmingly white, where the idea of having more people from outside of the country coming into work seems nonsensical than it is if you are living in an area or working in an area where you need people who are going to bring their skill sets in to help you economically and help your region economically. Which kind of brings me to my next question, Amy Walter, national editor of the Cook Political Report. Uh, someone like a Chuck Schumer, who is the Senate majority leader, is he actually not, when you get down to brass tacks, is he not as powerful on the margin as a, say, a Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who is that critical swing vote, who's voted alongside Trump, alongside Supreme Court justices nominated by Trump, that that is the crux that you need, or a Susan Collins, that it can't always be kind of uh, counting on Kamala Harris for vote 51, that you can't take these guys for granted. It's always going to have to go through his office. And he is in a great position to extract and demand rents, as is a Susan Collins, who's a rarity as a New England Republican. Right. I mean, I think when you have a 50-50 Senate, it means that every single Democratic senator becomes a king or a queen. It just takes one of them to hold something up. And so it's not just Joe Manchin. We've already heard from Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona recently uh, on issues like the filibuster. You know, she doesn't want to see the filibuster eliminated. She also said she doesn't want to see the $15 minimum wage in the COVID bill. So those are the folks that also carry attention. There are other moderates in the party that come from sort of purple states. There aren't as many, though, that come from red states, right? Joe Manchin is sort of in a world of, of his own. Oh, isn't there? Another, there's another. There was another one in the mountain region, <laughs> a mansion tester. You forget there's such rarities, right? So there's Ben Sass. There's Ben Sass. There's uh, Lisa Murkowski. I mean, some people who are on, on, on the border of this thing. But you, time was. I mean, again, I'm an old guy. I used to think of Bill Weld, right, and other New England Republicans, such as you know Senator Cohn, right. It's just it. It they just don't exist anymore. There's such an anomaly sticking out where the map is either dark red or dark blue. Amy, I have to ask you, well, about the Supreme Court. In the 10 minutes or so we have left with you, there's still this sense of injustice after what happened to, you know, Merrick Garland, who's now uh, Biden's attorney general pick, but that he was thwarted in 2016 uh, when Obama nominated him for the Supreme Court. And then Donald Trump proceeded to install three appointments to the Supreme Court. Do you hear of any sort of whisper campaign now for Biden and Kamala kind of suggesting maybe certain people or justices leave while the Democrats have the White House and the Senate? <laughs> well, we know, at least in, in modern times, the, the ability of a president to sort of give a hint to an older justice to maybe get out so that the replacement can be of the same party uh, didn't go so well. Of course, that lunch between Justice Ginsburg and Obama. A lunch, a lunch date at the White House and she pushed back. Yeah. But um, look, I think to me, the interesting thing about the Supreme Court, we, we had two very significant fights, although the most notable was the Kavanaugh fight. But Amy Coney Barrett was the debate over holding that hearing so close to the election was certainly noteworthy. But we haven't yet seen the impact of having a conservative court yet. And so conversations about what Biden should or shouldn't be doing in regards to the court, not just the Supreme Court, but lower courts, I think will start to or could start to gain steam if we see opinions coming out of the court that make it really clear 
that this is a very different place than the one that we had, a very different court than the one we had just a year or two ago. Well, uh, there's no the, n- nothing approximating court packing could happen with a 50-50 Senate right now, right? I mean, that was in the that was kind of on the dream list of the blue wave last fall, but when when they kind of came short in the House and the Senate was depending on Georgia and they only eked out 50-50 in the end, that's really not in the offing for them. Yeah, that's not happening. And quite frankly, even if there were a 51-52 Democratic seat majority, I don't think you would see some of these structural changes. Again, you've got you still have moderates. And in fact, the, the success of Democrats in 2020 was dependent on moderates or at least moderate leaning Democrats in some of these states like North Carolina or Iowa winning. So I don't think having those two in the Senate would mean that it would be easier to get a filibuster or to you know expand the size of the court. Instead, I think what Biden and what the Democrats recognize is where they are in agreement on policy, that's where they should focus. And quite frankly, when you have power, right, and, and especially when you have only a 50-50 Senate and you only have a five-seat majority in the House, you know it's very fleeting. Right. And so this is your opportunity to really push for policy as opposed to spending all of your time in these sort of arcane fights over procedure that don't really get you much and um, really uh, split the party up. And and you could end up with not much to show for it. Is it all but understood that he is not going to be in a position to run again in 2024, that at some point they're going to have to shoehorn in Kamala Harris? Or could this all just be ridiculous talk at this point? He could end up being extremely popular coming out of COVID and the economy or people suddenly feel united by him. What are you hearing on the ground? I don't think there's any hearing on the ground. I think most people expect that he's not going to run for re-election, but that he would not say such. And I think it doesn't make much sense for him to limit himself to being a lame duck this early in his presidency. I think what we're going to hear about, though, again, let's get past, I think it's going to be past the midterms, see where we are on the pandemic and the economy and stuff. But as we get through the midterms in 2022, all eyes are going to be on Kamala Harris. And you're going to probably have palace intrigue stories about what is she doing? Is she setting up her own political operation? Is she trying to distance herself or get herself closer to Joe Biden? And then you're going to have the stories of the other ambitious Democrats trying to figure out how they get their place in the sun. So those stories are coming. It's just, you know, we're a month into this thing. And we're not going to get that, get any of that yet. Well, close us out, Amy Walter, in the two or three minutes we have left with you. What should we be following? What do you think is getting short shrifted? Uh, what are you going to be writing about? Um, a lot of what I'm going to be writing about is watching this dynamic, as I said, this, this sort of realignment now of the parties between these more densely packed versus less dense areas and, and, and how we're realigning our politics there. Again, it's, it's fascinating because it's not just geographic, right? It's within states that this is happening. And of course, I'm also going to be paying a lot of attention. This is a re- redistricting year. So what that looks like is going to be very important to be able to understand what the House is going to look like for the next 10 years. And then just to see how you know, look, President Biden ran on this idea that if we just went back to normal, if we just sort of 
rewound back to, we could rewind back to 2016 that we could, I don't think he's ever thought we could pretend that Trump didn't happen, but that that was more, that Trumpism was an anomaly and our politics are, could be sort of brought back to a simmer rather than a boil. And thus far, I, I don't know that that is happening, <laughs> but this fight over sort of existential questions about who we are seem to be taking up more of our political bandwidth than anything that I've seen before. And so that kind, sure. that level of fight when you're when you're talking about believing that the other side is a threat to the country. I mean, this is where we have 80, 90 percent of Republicans and Democrats believing about the other side that they just they don't have the best interests of the country in mind that if they are in charge, they threaten the values of our country in a really substantial way. Solving that with sort of traditional tools is going to be really hard. So I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to that. Amy Walter, national editor of the Cook Political Report, host of WNYC's Politics with Amy Walter. You can also catch her on PBS NewsHour. You are always welcome on this show, and I sure hope you come back. Thank you so much. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. All of our episodes are available on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com, on Spotify, and of course on the trusty NPR One app, which is highly recommended. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FullDRadio. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you, as always, for listening. Back with you next week. Music